0: This episode is sponsored by Eternal Inc. and Tattoo Smart. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Books Closed. I am Andrew Stortz, and I am back to guide you through another hard hitting discussion about the world of tattooing. I mean, I don't know if the show's actually hard hitting very often, but it sounded like a pretty snappy way to kick this episode off. Before we start though, I want to remind everyone that I've got a voicemail line for the show that you are welcome to call anytime and leave a message with your thoughts, ideas, reactions to things you've heard on the show, etc. The number is 857-444-0662. I've gotten a handful of great messages from some of you, and I'm going to start integrating those into the show, so please keep them coming. I promise that no one's going to pick up the line when you call and make things weird, so don't worry about that. It's just a voicemail line. I just want to open up these discussions to all of you and hear your thoughts as well, because it's weird when I'm just talking to myself through this little microphone. Anyway, the tattoo world had some mainstream controversy over the past week or two, tattooer and former Ink Master Judge Oliver Peck had some old photos surface of him wearing various blackface Halloween costumes. They were met with very critical response from many, and it opened up larger conversations about racism, accountability, sexual assault, etc., and all these things within tattooing and outside of tattooing. How, did, how do we feel about it? How does it affect us? This episode has some segments that were filmed months ago, and one of them was filmed almost a year ago now. And although we aren't addressing directly these more current events uh, this week, I think many facets of those larger conversations that were started can certainly be found here. So let's start off by talking to tattooer Tamara Santibanez. And referring to her just as a tattooer is leaving out a lot of the other things she does, including great art outside of her tattoo work writing, publishing, advocating etc. The list truly goes on and you'll hear more about those things shortly but Tamara truly exists in multiple worlds within tattooing working at Save Tattoo in New York. She has serious credentials that can be respected by any tattooer while also having a high level of recognition from the outsider segments of the tattoo culture and I think this is a pretty rare thing And I think it really contributes to her unique perspective. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Tamara Santibanez. Uh, We were just talking about how you are a podcast champion. You're a seasoned <laughs> podcaster. Probably you've probably done as many podcasts as I have at this point.
1: I don't know about that, but I do <laughs> Yeah, I was telling you earlier I've just did this is my fourth one this month. But that's a personal record, you know. It's usually not so many so close together.
0: Right. Right. It's just that time of the year, I suppose. So, hopefully you're not too sick of talking about yourself because it can it can be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but we're here to talk about you. We're not here to talk about me today. <laughs> I want to start off and just give a little context about your career. Are you a native New Yorker or where, where'd you grow up?
1: I'm not. So I grew up in Athens, Georgia. So I'm a southerner, technically. Um, mm-hmm. And I, but I moved to New York when I was 18. So I've been here now for 14 years. So I feel pretty acclimated to New York. That's what I usually say. I feel, I mean, I'm an East Coaster at heart, of course, but New York is, is a place that I felt really at home as soon as I moved here, and the I don't know the climate the social climate really suits me here, so I think I'm a New Yorker at this point.
0: Yeah, I think after that much time it's it's pretty undisputable if you can if you can make it more than 10 years in New York, I think you're, you you've earned the title.
1: <laughs> I mean it takes that long to finally get comfortable here ah. so I'm like, why would I want to leave now?
0: Right, right um, so did you start tattooing when you came here or was that before you moved?
1: No. So I moved, I moved here. I had just turned 18 when I moved to New York. So I had gotten a couple of tattoos before that. I was, um, I lived in, I grew up in Athens and then I lived in Savannah for a year before moving to New York. Love Savannah. Yeah. I mean, Savannah has its own tattoo scene there, um, that I was sort of adjacent to because I had friends who tattooed friends who worked as shop hands. Um, I crossed paths with Zach Spurlock around that time. And, um, a friend of mine, you know, I had a friend who was apprenticing to tattoo at the time. So it was sort of just around, um, though I wasn't old enough to legally engage with any of it. And I had, you know, stick and pokes, homemade tattoos were around. And then as soon, so then I wasn't, I wasn't old enough to legally get tattooed in shops until I moved to New York. And I got into it partially just because I was really punk and really DIY and doing homemade tattoos was just part of that. And, everyone was always doing stick I mean stick and pokes were so ubiquitous right and so I was really interested in tattooing as soon as I started getting tattoos in shops and there was a certain magic to it that I just wanted to be around even when I had friends who were getting tattooed and I went with them to get tattooed and it was probably so annoying I just (laughs) something about the environment and the confidence of the tattoo artist and watching what they were doing. And it almost seemed like a form of magic to me. You know, I've used the word alchemy before Um, watching people mix inks or like set up needles. And I just wanted to know how to do it. Um, I think there is a certain amount of magic to just watching tattooing and not knowing anything about it. Uh, I mean, I think of the questions the clients ask, like, how do you know where the ink's going? To them, it just looks like a big mess. And, but we know (laughs) exactly where we're putting it. right? Right. Um, so that was a mystery that I was so intrigued by and I really wanted to apprentice to tattoo, but I was also sort of figuring out college at the time I had, I had moved here to go to art school and I had left the place where I had been and gone back to school for printmaking and was trying to finish there. It was kind of this long road of like many student loans and many years and majors. Um, but, Through printmaking and through all of that time, I was really intrigued by tattooing and I was trying to collect tattoos and had friends who were tattooing and friends who were apprenticing at the time here as well. So I kind of figured that I would have to wait until I was done with school to be able to commit to really looking for an apprenticeship. But what happened in the meantime was that I was doing homemade tattoos and I had a machine and, you know, there were some people at the time who were really cool professional tattooers who gave me some really good advice and some really needed encouragement and you know I was painting Flash and trying to be kind of serious about it and just trying to figure out what I could on my own even though I knew that that was frowned upon and I knew the people at Three Kings a little bit because I was working at a restaurant at the time and the owners of the restaurant were friends and long-term clients of the people at Three Kings of um, mostly Miles Carr and Alex McWatt and so They connected me with them because they needed someone to do some screen printing for some posters for an event, and I came in and I showed them all my like punk show posters that I had made that I had drawn and printed, and they were like, "Cool, yeah, you can you can do this for us."
0: That was your in.
1: That was my in, yeah. And it's funny to think, you know, my punk flyers were kind of like my portfolio that I shopped (laughs) to the tattoo shop. It worked. Yeah, it worked. Um, And I so I drew this really crazy flyer for this zombie themed Friday the 13th day that was like the framing was these like two really gross zombies that were like tattooing each other's decaying flesh and one was like tattooing the other one's eyeball and like pus was coming out it was (laughs) it was still gross um but then in trade for doing that I got tattooed by Alex and I talked to him you know I remember saying to him I was really interested in learning to tattoo and he for sure could tell that I was already doing it um and was really gentle and kind about that. And then I had tattooed my friend Ted, who worked at the local bike shop in my house with this like really fucked up looking devil head. And he went into Three Kings to get tattooed by Miles. They were like, oh, that's new. Who did that tattoo on you? Um, he was like, oh, my friend Tamara did it at her house. And they were like, oh, we, we know her, actually. So then I got a phone call and they were like, hey, we saw that tattoo that you did on Ted." And I thought I was like,
0: "Yo, come down. We're going to fuck you up. A
1: hundred (laughs) percent. Right. Big trouble. Big trouble. Like I was going to get my ass handed to me, but they were like, you know, like it looks okay. You know, like, do you want to come do tattoos here? Um, and so they offered me, I went down and I talked with them and they were basically like, you, you don't know what you're doing, but you kind of know what you're doing for, for not knowing anything, you're figuring it out and you would do well with some direction and like a place to just tattoo more and practice and have some guidance. So I started tattooing there a couple days a week while I was still in school. I was finishing my last year of school and started doing that just by appointment and charging the minimum for everything. And then I did that for maybe six months. Once I graduated, I started working there, um, full time and eventually started doing walk-ins and I was there for four years.
0: It, it's funny how, how things can play out like that. Cause that's kind of like the dream story for someone who's, you know, you, you're going it alone. You're, you don't have that initial opportunity. So you're kind of doing the thing that you know, you maybe shouldn't do, or people might not dig it, but then it actually works out.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, I, you know, there's so many DIY tattooers or people who start, I mean, there, there always have been, yeah. right? I think that's kind of the well-kept secret of tattooing is that so many people start out self-taught. And um, a lot of people ask me about entering into it in that way. And I usually say, you know, I can't quite recommend it because my experience was so unique. Everyone I know that started that way had to really slowly build their way up from working at, you know, whatever street shop until four in the morning and then slowly get into better, more reputable shops where they could slowly build a custom clientele. But I was really lucky because I got to get into Three Kings, which is this really great shop. It was pretty new at the time. I think maybe it had only been open for two or three years and to really grow with them and as they started to get really busy, just get tons of experience, but also have the amazing reputations of the people who worked there to um, lend me some credibility and to help me grow that legitimacy and that trust from clients that led to being able to do a lot of custom work pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That validation can go a long way. And especially for your own confidence, I think, as you're developing to have to know that people are going to trust you more. It, it's a greater sense of responsibility that probably you're like laser focused even more because it's like higher pressure. The stakes are higher. It's not just in your apartment and maybe someone else is like, you know, your friend comes through and you tattoo him or whatever. So I think it does a lot of things once you get that, you know, your first big shot, you know, that movie rock star where the kids singing the singing along <laughs> to the band in the front row. And then they point him out and they say, you got to be in the band. It's like you got in the band.
1: I got in the band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, definitely. That's truly that, that pressure kind of makes you be like, Oh, I got to get it, got to get it together. It's there's yeah. a lot more on the line now at this point.
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, it worked. I think you got a, I think you got a real career ahead of you.
1: I hope so. Go you know, pro. Here's hoping.
0: <laughs> so, a, a topic that comes up on this show a lot, uh, especially this season, is about how people are entering into tattooing, because it is so controversial. And like you said, it is a secret. People act like there's one way to get in, and that's how everyone's done it. And and anyone who asks, "Oh, I'm interested in tattooing," the line is, "Well, you got to get an apprenticeship. You got to work for it. You got to bring portfolios around to shops." But how realistic even is that? Ever or now? You know. Right. Like what advice could, could we even give to someone who's interested in tattooing now?
1: That's a great question. Like real advice that
0: they can actually do something with.
1: Right. I think that's really a big question that is even more hard to answer now because tattooing, I mean, I wasn't around in tattooing 20 years ago, right? I've been tattooing for a little bit over 10 years. So I'm only speculating here. Um, and I think here's the other thing about tattooing, right, is that we love to self-mythologize and we love revisionist history. So I think that trying to get at the truth of what actually has been happening in tattooing is really hard to do. And I only can speak to the last 10 years because that's what I've seen firsthand. But I see a lot of people who it either started on their own because they didn't have another opportunity presented to themselves in a formal way or. Um, who then were able to get a little more formal training or learning in the way that I I did or people who just go 100% DIY I think it's pretty rare to actually have a, a formal apprenticeship from what I can see and there's so much investment and work that require that's required on the front end to even get your foot in the door and that's where I think we start to talk about why people self teach because there's you know there's economic barriers for example like the only reason I was even able to get professional tattoos when I first started um, getting them in New York was because I was able to, to barter with a lot of people or they would give me just a discount. I've, I don't know, for whatever reason, because it was a friend of a friend or because, you know, I like like I said, I did some screen printing work. I traded for it. Mm. Um, I definitely did not have $300, $500 to get a tattoo at the time. So if what was required for me to get an apprenticeship was to just get enough tattoos that I could build a relationship with an artist, there's just no way I could have afforded that. Um, if you're talking about things like formal art education, uh, which, of course, is not a requirement of tattooing. And I think that's part of the beauty of tattooing is that you do not need to have that. Tattooing is very egalitarian in that sense. Um, but if you're, uh, you know, a lot of people these, these days do have a formal art career and that maybe gives them a little bit of an advantage in draftsmanship or drawing or what have you. Uh, that's something that's really inaccessible to tons of people. So, I think that with, I mean, and there's then there's also the more kind of like ephemeral things that prevent people from being access, access being able to access an apprenticeship. So, and these are the things that I think we start to talk about when we talk about uh, equity and representation in tattooing. You know, things like if it's a shop full of guys and I'm this like young girl, am I going to feel confident enough to even ask or even broach the topic with them? Right. Um, There's a lot of power dynamics that exist there. There's a lot of um, ways that people already feel excluded and a lot of barriers. And I guess maybe the argument people make is like, well, if you have what it takes, you'll you'll leap those hurdles. Right. And you'll you'll find a way to transcend those barriers. But I think that that answer is a little too simplistic. And I think it neglects the ways that our communities have been really self-selecting because. The the thing now, I find myself really straddling two worlds, right? I am a punk DIY tattooer at heart, at core, and at beginning, and I became really professionalized, and that's where I exist today. I work at a really great shop. I charge professional rates. I only, sold out. I, I'm a, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, it's so sad. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that, but yeah, so that's how I started, and then at, this is where I am today, um, in terms of. I guess identities or like intersections of my, my worlds. I am also like a queer person of color and, um, you know, and I'm a woman and that is something that
0: three strikes and tattooing.
1: Yeah. Right. So, um, so if we're talking now about the ways that like, I I perceive there just being this huge divide that's starting to exist, right. Between the kind of old school, like traditional guard of, of what's perceived as like the old white guys of tattooing, right? Um, Who work in street shops or what have you. I'm trying to think of like the ways that people perceive it, right? Or describe it.
0: Yeah, we're generalizing Um, on purpose here.
1: Exactly. So, and then we have the polar opposite of that, which is like the super punk, super DIY, anarchistic, self-taught, um, breaking all the rules of like formalism of tattooing, folks who are working out of private studios or alternative spaces, or just traveling constantly, and those people who are really carving out this alternative space for them within tattooing as a whole. And I would say, in in ways, I belong equally to both worlds. Even though I exist so professionally now, I also have a lot of allegiance to the latter, and I see my role hopefully as being a bridge builder between those two worlds because i see the value in each one and i think it's very dangerous to create this binary of tattooing where um, shop tattooing is the only tattooing that's good home tattooing is always bad or private studio tattooing is the only type that's safe getting tattooed by men is never safe i i think that that does such a huge disservice to people all across the spectrum right and I think that it also does a disservice to tattooing as a whole because it doesn't create space for growth and transformation and challenging the industry. Um, I see a lot of older tattooers who are like, they're just like, what the fuck is this kind of tattooing? Um, I'm thinking of this the styles that are called, people have different names for it, right? Like Ignorance Style or like Stick and Poke Tattooing or what have you. People are just like, why in God's name? anyone want that on their body right it's so ugly or like that person can't even draw those are things I hear people say a lot and and I think those
0: people have like a three-eyed ram skull like (laughs) pentagram thing on their throat and they're like judging someone else's (laughs) tattoo which is a funny thing to think about totally
1: I mean taste is a hundred percent subjective right what's an amazing tattoo to you could be the ugliest tattoo in the world to another person and vice versa and and so I think it's really important to make space for these people who challenge our ideas of what is a real tattoo. Um, I mean, the idea of a real tattoo, I think, doesn't even exist. And to try to use this illusion of what tattooing is or is not, you know, in like a kind of a purist sense against people, I think it it does a disservice to tattooing because we need rule breakers. We need people who don't know what they're doing, but are trying to do something crazy and new because that's how innovation happens. That's how expansion of the art form happens. We need people to try to do the impossible or to do things that everyone said couldn't be done or things that we believe are wrong. And maybe not all of it is successful, but that's part of learning. And I think that's something that we all, even as older people who have been striving for a sort of like, um, technical proficiency, right. In tattooing, that's what we all do to some extent, right. We're all also always trying new things and also trying things that we maybe haven't seen before or trying things that we haven't thought that we could do to mix results. Right. We're all, we've all done tattoos that aren't always our favorite tattoo or maybe aren't the stronger. So we could have done better. And so I think that it's actually a really positive thing. The tattooing is being challenged to look at its um its technicality and its images and its drawing styles and for it to explode in this way because there is a tattoo for everyone. You know, I think, I think that's the key
0: to, I, to keep sight of that, that not every person wants the same thing. So we can't impose this one thing on every person who walks through the door because it's, it's not just not realistic.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that the fear of Other people doing these styles can sometimes come from a scarcity mentality, right? Which is like, let's talk about capitalism, of course, right? Like, so we all have these careers that we want to maintain. We all want to be tattooing consistently. We all want to be making money, supporting ourselves, supporting our family, fucking living in New York, paying New York rent. Yeah. And, but when I look at people who are doing like stick and pokes, for example, those people are not stealing my clients, right? We're just not doing the same thing. So for me to feel threatened by that person's business is unrealistic because they can't do what I do and I can't do what they do. So we're serving different needs. And I think that that's really important to acknowledge. And my style of tattooing is not for everyone. That's part of the beauty of tattooing. And what's cool now is that because there's such a multitude of styles and artists out there, I can say no, and other artists can say no, and we can say, hey, I'm actually focusing on this style, but I know someone who would be perfect for that. Let me refer you to them. Um, and that I think is really is really beautiful, and it's this really like, form of community support that I think is cool, rather than having this scarcity mentality of like, well, if I don't do this tattoo, then someone else is going to take my client, or if I don't do this tattoo, then I can't pay my rent, and I need to be able to do every tattoo that everyone needs. Um, because that's just not the case, you know, that's just not the reality of it. And um, I think by being mutually supportive to each other and supportive of each other's styles, particularly now that the industry is moving into sort of this specialized direction, I think um, it only helps everyone.
0: Coming up after the break, we will talk to one of Tamara's coworkers at Save Tattoo, Doreen Garner. We will learn a bit about her fine art background, How it all led her to start tattooing in 2016, and why she feels it is so important as a black woman to make space for herself within tattooing. When we come back. A huge thank you goes to Eternal Inc. for sponsoring this episode. And I've been telling you a bit about Eternal Inc. this season, as they've been a very gracious supporter of Books Closed. And I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you the answers to some common questions that tattoo artists and collectors may have of Eternal Ink. Eternal makes their ink of natural pigments and deionized water. It's free of animal byproducts and it is vegan. Eternal Ink is not tested on animals. It's supplied in a medical grade sealed bottle ensuring its longevity before and after opening. Eternal Ink pigments are regularly evaluated and tested. They cooperate with all regulations and it's fully made in the USA. And I can definitely relate to hearing these questions. Some of them asked from uh, our customers, but also other tattooers just want to know what's going on because sometimes some brands, some types of ink, it can feel like it's a mystery. Um, So it, it definitely can be peace of mind knowing all these things and being able to trust Eternal Ink with all of your ink needs. So if you have not been able to try Eternal for whatever reason, or even if you have, They are offering a 20% discount off the full retail price on all Eternal Ink Colors if you head on over to eternaltattoosupply.com and use the promo code BOOKSCLOSED at checkout. This offer includes both single bottles and full sets in all of the available sizes. It excludes combination with other offers, and it's not to be used with the Color of the Week promotion. So again, allow me to reiterate. Head on over to eternaltattoosupply.com and use promo code booksclothes to check and get a 20% discount off the full retail price on all Eternal Ink colors. And I'm also curious, is it tacky if I use my own promo code and go get some Eternal Ink for myself? I may or may not have already done that. So don't be shy, I wasn't. Thank you. A big thank you to Tattoo Smart for sponsoring this episode and I want to tell you a little bit about their new Spit Shading Toolkit. This is the most comprehensive digital toolkit to replicate traditional watercolor painting. It includes digital watercolor papers, lining and inking, and watercolor brushes. High resolution textured papers that replicate the cold press watercolor papers preferred by tattooers for decades to paint flash. What all this means is that you can now download the Spit Shading Toolkit from Tattoo Smart in your digital paintings, will look as authentic as possible. And the first time I saw this toolkit being used, I was actually blown away. This truly looks, and I'll show some examples on the screen if you're watching this, you can really see the texture of the paper, the way that the ink blends. It's It has a very authentic look from this toolkit and uh, I was pretty blown away. The ink and lining brushes replicate the density, ink flow and size of traditional ink pens. And the watercolor brushes used as Procreate Standard or Smudge allow you to precisely blend color and recreate the iconic tint gradient of traditional painted flash. You kind of have to see it to believe it. So, check out tattoosmart.com for the Spit Shading Toolkit, as well as all the Tattoo Smart tools and tutorials. And to sweeten the deal and get you over there even quicker, make sure that you use coupon code BOOKSCLOSED for 15% off all Tattoo Smart products. So that's tattoosmart.com. Use that code books closed" for fifteen percent off your purchase and get designing today with the spit shading toolkit. And if you do, make sure you tag me at books Closed Podcast so I can see what you made. So I'm here with Doreen Garner. I guess I'll start off by saying thanks for coming.
2: I yeah, appreciate thanks you. Thanks for doing having
0: this. me. Um, I had stumbled upon your stuff on instagram semi-recently i think i reached out to you like an hour after i discovered you on the internet um and i'd seen a couple videos that were made about your tattooing but also about your sculpture work Mm -hmm. and i was intrigued because i feel like a lot of tattooers and especially the ones who i've talked to on this show uh, up to this point don't have a fine art background the way that you do Mm -hmm. um and over the course of time, people will contact me and, and say, oh, you should have this person on or this type of person or like someone who's newer to tattooing, you know, like an apprentice or someone who's a couple of years in. And I always thought if I think back to when I was because when did you start tattooing?
2: Um, I started tattooing in 2016. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think back to when I was a couple of years in and I would not have been a good podcast guest because I didn't have any experience or opinions or things to say. Mm, mm-hmm. But I felt that you can bring that perspective along with a lot of artistic experiences and knowledge and opinions and stuff so you're perfect exactly what I needed (laughs) so let's start off and talk about your art background
2: yes so I have a uh, BFA in glass from Tyler School of Art um, at Temple University in Philadelphia and then my master's degree in also glass um, but from Mm. Rhode Island School of Design
0: what is glass
2: glass um, it's like a glass blowing program so I blow glass too in addition to all these things
0: damn I didn't even know that yeah (laughs) I guess, what, what is your main focus at currently?
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, working in glass, it has a lot of really unique characteristics as far as being a material. And so um, one of the main things that I'm really interested in is its ability to transform from a liquid to a solid. Um, and I end up finding a lot of those same characteristics in other materials. So um, I use a lot of silicone in my work right now. Um, and that actually stands in mostly as flesh, Um, which kind of explains my interest in tattooing. It's like I'm, you know, generally really interested in the body and figuring out how, um, you know, to bring a lot of my ideas to, I don't know, like a physical object, but something that we can relate to. A lot of my sculptural work deals with um, stories where black bodies were exploited by the medical industry throughout history. Um, And so a lot of the work in that video, which was an Art 21 video, Um, focused on a show that I created um, with my friend Kenya Robinson called White Men on a Pedestal. And um, a lot of the concepts in those pieces that I made were focused on um, James Marion Sims, um, who is kind of called like the father of modern gynecology, but he ended up becoming famous from torturing black women alive. Um, And so a lot of you know, the focus on those pieces were to bring this history um, to a place where people could acknowledge it and not deny it um, and just have it, you know, stay with them. I end up using trauma a lot in my work um, just so people don't forget about the history and don't forget about my work in general.
0: What was the reaction that you got to that project? Because there was a bit of performance art that was part of the yeah, presentation yeah. of that too.
2: Yeah, yeah. So so a cool part about it um, was that you know, there was a the J. Marion Sims statue that was in Central Park, and um, it was currently up for debate on whether or not it should stay up. And so I had always had this idea in my mind that I wanted to take a body cast of his statue um, and then kind of peel the silicone off and then do a surgery where, you know, I'm performing the same things that he did on these women, but on his own body. And so, you know, Pioneer Works gave me the opportunity to finally realize that as a project. And so, Um, one of the, you know, interesting components of the show was this performative aspect where people were invited into the space and it ended up becoming more of like a surgical theater. Um, And I don't know. I like to go off of different cues from like, you know, different shows like game of Thrones, for instance, people really love like gore and violence. And so those were some of the things that I wanted to include in the performance. Um, But yeah, the the reactions, um, you know, people loved it, but were also shocked. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I know when I saw that video, I thought, shit. Yeah. It has a massive impact, even just seeing it on my phone screen. Uh, And I can imagine being there, it's even more of an impact to it, but. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm super cultured as far as fine art and like the fine art world and stuff. And and I think a lot of times uh, more conceptual or performance art type stuff might not hit me the same way. But I feel like with what you did in that particular project, the intent was so clear and the message was so clear in it that it was like it was pretty impactful to me for sure.
2: Right. Yeah. So as an artist, I'm always trying to make sure that um, my work is accessible for people that aren't typically found within our institutions, um, or, you know, are well-versed in, uh, art speak. And so, um, you know, I end up using a lot of cues that are, are really human. And so like thinking about, um, what people are attracted to, what people are disgusted by, what people are horrified by. And so these are, you know, really easy doors for people to be able to enter the work.
0: Yeah. I'd seen another interview with you online where you said that you like to make the viewer uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and do you find that that people sometimes discredit work that uses like a level of shock value or something because they might assume that there isn't more substance to it beyond that?
2: Um, yeah, I think they do. Uh, one thing that I really try hard to include is um, concepts of the work in the title and the description um, so that people know that a lot of these works that I'm creating as physical objects are localized in a real history.
0: I know that since you're so, you know, you're such a inside part of creating these visuals with the silicone and recreating bodies and all these like the gruesome innards of it and everything. But when you when you step back and maybe you reflect on it, do you, does it still have the effect on you that you hope it has on others? Or are you just too Are you too inside of it that um, you're like, oh, I wish I had done this a little differently or I might do this better next time?
2: Yeah, I think I think, you know, I'm always like wishing that I had more time. Right. Um, But for this one piece that I did for that show, um, it's uh, called The Leg of a 15 year old girl who were never who will never dance again, a white man in pursuit of the pedestal. And so um, with that history, uh, there was a 15 year old. Um, black girl who was enslaved and she had a really minor leg injury and she came in um, to be checked out. And this physician, WH Robert, he decided to amputate her leg just to see if he could do it successfully. Um, and so in that instance, I ended up casting um, a leg um, that was filled with you know, silicone and glitter and crystals and glass beads. And um, that actually sat on a what I would like to call a surgical table, um, but then it was also placed on a mirrorized platform that spun around, kind of like a car show. And um, you know, I've been working on the piece for a long time, and you know, been focusing on focusing on making sure the coloring was right um, and just like all the little details. But until that piece was placed on the table, was turned on, and the light um, hit it when it started spinning around, like I almost cried. Uh, which was a reaction that I've never had to my work before. And so, you know, those are the things that help me to realize that, you know, all these, like, I don't know, components of experiencing a sculpture, thinking about space and light and sound and the object itself, where it's placed in the space, um, that, you know, everything adds up and and makes, like, a a great equation um, that is still powerful, even for me that's, like, totally into the process
0: right so now since this is a tat podcast I guess we should talk about tattoos a little bit yeah (laughs) (laughs) now that people have an idea of kind of your background a little more pre-tattooing um I guess one of the one of the overall things that I thought was interesting about you is that a lot of times tattooers are more just the messenger for the the person receiving the tattoo for their ideas and the (laughs) images that they're seeking and everything but I feel like your, your position coming from the fine art world where it's commonplace to project your own thoughts and your own ideas and, and really creating a message. I feel like you're bringing that into your tattooing already,
2: mm-hmm. which
0: is super interesting. Because I know that I've always felt more just like I'm providing the service for someone. And then I've, I've been able to learn a lot about imagery and stuff that I didn't know just through, you know, telling other people's story, I guess, in a sense, through their tattoo. Mm-hmm. So do you feel the same freedom in your tattooing that you do in your other areas of art?
2: Um, no. <laughs> right. It's I almost think, impossible
0: to yeah, at yeah, all times.
2: It's kind of impossible. And, you know, making an object is very different from, you know, permanently altering someone else's body. And so I think a lot of the components of tattooing is, you know, focused on People being able to have like ownership of their body and be able to reclaim their identity through physical appearance, um, and so you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like I don't have much say, and I should not have much say. Um, I'm basically a practitioner that helps you realize this idea, um, but I, I also feel that you know, if someone is making a really fast decision um, that is not really thought out. You know, I try to like talk with them for a long time beforehand. It's not like I'm going to tell them I'm not going to do it. But, um, you know, I, I really care for my clients and I want them to make great decisions about their bodies. Um, and, you know, I want them to feel confident about the decisions that they make.
0: Yeah, it's always a, a sense of balance and kind of towing that line of you never want to tell someone what to do. But sometimes mm-hmm. you kind of have to tell people what not to do or at least encourage them to think about it. Yeah and I know that I always feel the responsibility of I I want someone to look better than before they came in for the tattoo rather than worse. So I I still have a really hard time um, with like the face tattoo thing that happens a Mm. lot. And and obviously there's tons of beautiful face tattoos and people that have made that as a correct decision for themselves. But it seems like with pop culture, kind of glamorizing that sort of thing that younger people especially are making what I can assume could be a mistake for them as far as tattooing their faces when they're 19, 20 years old.
2: Right. Yeah, because people, you know, they swell up in the next 10 years and next (sighs) year you know, they crazy spread out face tattoos. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like face tattoos should like frame your face but people are just like oh I'll pick that piece of flash and put it on my cheek like it was never supposed to be a face tattoo like when you're getting an arm tattoo on your face I feel like it's unfortunate looking a lot of times right right (laughs) but it's tough and some people learn the hard way right but I know that I never want to be the one who who lets that happen you know Mm -hmm. I don't know it's tough and and again it's it's just that balance and But that's one of the beauties of tattooing, is that we can all make the decisions on what we're comfortable with doing.
2: Yeah. I actually want a face tattoo. Yeah. Um, I want to get an ice cube tattoo. So you know how he has like those three moles? Mm -hmm. I want to get that.
0: Aren't they like two of them are moles and one is a tattoo? What? Really? I thought so.
2: I don't know. I thought I read that a long time ago. I don't know. I mean, they've been there for a long time. And I think they look raised, so...
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to research that a little more before I make that definitive statement about it. Yeah,
2: but that's like my little ode to Friday tattoo. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, as an artist, I think that you can do that sort of thing and get away with it. You're not going to be like punching the clock somewhere to...
2: Yeah, no. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what
0: I mean. Some people, it's the right decision and some people, it just is not. Mm -hmm. So as far as, um, what was the progression of you finding your way to tattooing?
2: Right. Um, Well, I actually had my first... Um, tattoo shop when I was 10 years old Um, so when I was younger my sister she had um, like a major stroke and so she spent a lot of time in the hospital um, during this first summer and so I ended up you know staying a lot at my grandma's house and um, you know I ended up going to this beach trip with my aunt and my cousins and they were giving out temporary tattoos on the boardwalk and I'm like I can do that Um, And so, you know, came back to my grandma's house, wrote the word tattoos wrong on a cardboard box and, you know, started drawing my own flash designs. And, um, you know, my friends were getting tattoos just by me, like using Crayola markers. But, you know, they were like 25 cents, 50 cents, Mm -hmm. you know, just putting little things together. Um, And so in that regard, like tattooing has always been an interest for me. Um, and especially body modification in general. My first job was actually working at Infinite Body Piercing in Philadelphia. And so it's always been um, something that's been included in my life. Um, But I think, you know, thinking about like the lack of representation of, you know, Black and other people of color um, in the tattoo industry, that I always felt like it wasn't something that I could access Um, And it wasn't until, uh, you know, 2016 when um, Tamara at Saved approached me about um, being included in the book that she was publishing. And, you know, I was looking at her website and I was like, oh, my God, she's a tattoo artist. Like, I can apprentice under Tamara. And so, you know, I wrote her an email being like, can I be your apprentice? And she's like, no. Um, Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. Um, But she's like, no, but I can come to your studio and we can talk. And so... Um, She came to my studio and we basically had a discussion about, um, you know, gatekeepers and accessibility and being able to take things into your own hands um, and kind of like learn to tattoo practice on your own terms. And so she was like, you know, a lot of tattoo artists are actually self-taught and, you know, there's not a lot of rules, Um, you know, health wise, of course, there are rules, but as far as everything else, like, you know, tattooing was always about like, you know, breaking out of the box and like being your own person. Um, and so, you know, in this way you can also do that. And so I was like, oh, right. Yes, I can, I guess. Um, and so, you know, immediately I went out and got my tattoo license and I bought all the equipment and I started, you know, practicing on myself and on my friends and, you know, it's been history from there.
0: Yeah. Isn't it crazy how sometimes you just need someone to kind of tell you it's okay?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Especially as like a black woman, it's like, oh no, like why do I feel like I need permission all the time? It's like, oh yeah, I can, I can do this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've been thinking about that sort of, you know, gatekeepers and just the way, just the tradition of tattooing lately, but I'm trying to put more logic into it instead of just blindly following this thing that's been like a veil over my eyes this whole time. And I'm sure in the past that I've, and you know, I, I touched on a little bit in the last uh, in the last season of the show, and it, it's interesting because I know that I've people have asked me questions about tattooing, and I'm I'm sure I've just brushed it off like, well, this is how it works, this is tattooing, this is what it is. But like, what is thinking about what that actually means, kind of opened my eyes to the fact that. Like you're saying, it's it's funny because we're supposed to be like rule breakers and we're punk rock and we're like underground. Yeah. But we're all like impressing these unspoken rules on each other at the same time. So what what is that? Yeah. It, that that's so contradictory you know, contradictory to what tattooing is, is again, I'm saying is supposed to be, but um just the root of all of it, it's it's so interesting. And I think that Tamara does a lot of focus on um underrepresented people inside and outside of tattooing with mm-hmm. art and stuff, and I think that's very cool. And it's it's a voice that's not heard. Mm-hmm. So it's, although I think that it's fully warranted and stuff, I'm sure it's like a very brave move for her to be one of the first people to really focus on that and put mm-hmm. that stuff out there. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, Tamara's amazing.
0: Yeah. Looking back to when you were a kid and you saw the temporary tattoos being given out and you thought, I could do that. And then you did. Where do you think that confidence comes from?
2: Um, I don't know. I think... Recently, um, I've been noticing a pattern with myself and it's that I, I like enter into these uh, white male dominated communities and I'm like, no, <laughs> um, like I really try to make space for myself and um, I'm really determined to make my voice heard. And so, you know, I think that, you know, I don't know, that's just something that has increasingly become important to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Wait, what was the question again? We can cut that part. <laughs> <laughs> no, just the root of your confidence,
0: because I could, Oh, right I, right, I think I could, before talking to you, I could have assumed that as you've, I mean, cause you've taken like the the educational path of learning art in a real way. And I know that that can create confidence. And as you do more things and in in more projects and you get more recognition for your work, then obviously you're going to become more confident in the things you do in the future. Yeah. But it sounds like you've had that confidence all along. And that's what interests me.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess I've had it all along. Um, there were definitely some years where I was like in particularly shy. Um, and I think that I ended up gaining more confidence while I was in grad school. Um, And it was because, you know, full grown adult lady. Um, But being put into these situations where I did have to like combat um, blatant racism within an art institution from 19 year old kids. Um, And so it's like, okay, you really need to figure out how to be a leader and how to teach people how to treat you. Um, and also not tolerate any bullshit by any means. And so um, I think just, you know, by growing up and growing into myself, I've just been increasingly confident and also surrounding myself by other strong Black women, you know, their strength and numbers. And, um, you know, I just feel like that's also been a large component of just me, you know, feeling like I can do it more so because I have people behind me that are, like, pushing me and counting on me to you know, get that done.
0: Yeah. So this will sound like a dumb question, but I'm going to lob you a, an underhand toss just for discussion's sake here. Why do you think it's important for more diversity to be, uh, I guess, introduced into tattooing?
2: Um, I think it's, it's more important. It's important for there to be diversity in tattooing, um, mostly because a lot of the tattooing practice has come from... Um, cultures that are dominated by people of color. Um, and so I think that it's, it's responsibility to, um, bring that focus back to them. Um, I think that there are many people of color that want to participate, participate in body modification, and there aren't many spaces where they feel safe to do that or people that they feel safe enough to do that with. And so, um, It's important because the conversations need to change um, and the interactions between people need to change in general. Um, I think by including more people of color in different shops that it's just going to provide a different clientele, a different experience for people. And I think that, you know, people will be able to come together and appreciate the process and the movement as one rather than separately. Um, And, I don't know. I, th- I think that by including more people of color, that's the only way to start to diminish a lot of, you know, these legacies of white supremacy and tattooing.
0: There is a lot more to hear from Doreen that you will find later this week in an extended episode, so be on the lookout for that. That interview was filmed earlier in 2019, but let's fast forward to October. While I was working on a bunch of other episodes in New York for this current season, I was able to check out an event called The Experience of a Black Tattooer. It was put together by the organization Ink the Diaspora, whose Instagram bio describes themselves as a platform that is for visibility of brown and dark-skinned folks who struggle to find representation for tattoos. It was held at Welcome Home Studio a serene private tattoo studio in Brooklyn. There are no walls of flash there, instead white brick walls, some very healthy potted plants, and tons of natural light. This was a two-day event, the first being a flash day, where five tattooers were each offering sheets of designs to get tattooed from. During that day, I spoke to an awaiting client, Victoria. So what brings you out here today?
3: Um... So today's about getting tattooed. I feel like I've been following a lot of these tattooers on Instagram for a while. Um, and I've definitely only really want to be tattooed by other black people. So this was just one of those coincidences. I had to be in. I ha- happened to be in New York. so.
0: Have you ever found it difficult to find black tattoo artists?
3: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like you can't. Just walk into a tattoo place and expect like a black tattoo artist Um, So it's a blessing when that does happen And it's also a blessing when you're able to connect with them through social media
2: and then like find other events happening like this
0: Have you ever seen another event like this happening anywhere else?
2: No, not really (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Who are you getting tattooed by today? Um, Sanyu Sanyu Nicholas is a New York City-based tattooer who was working at the event. I caught a quick word with them between tattoos. What does it mean to you to be able to tattoo at an event like this one? It means
3: community, exposure, uh, you know, everybody getting together and just showing their best work and
0: yeah. On the second day of the event there was a panel discussion that featured none other than Doreen Garner as well as Jalind, Oba, and Anderson Luna. This was a discussion about the panelists' personal histories within tattooing. What was it like to first fall in love with it? How they navigated through shops early on, struggling to find places they felt like they fit in? One of the questions they were asked was what their definition of traditional tattooing is. Anderson Luna answered...
3: Uh, I think the reason people Fall back on American tattooing, like Sailor Jerry style, is as when you even mention the word traditional tattooing is because of the fact that the people that um, do it and cultivated it and started it. This it's only a 140 year old tradition. It was wasn't around and held up to the same regard as like Japanese tattooing, which has been around for thousands of years. I think the only reason that even takes place is because the people that are doing it and are sort of like in control of American traditional are the least marginalized people in our society, which are white men. You know? mm-hmm. So that's just the fact that why, you know, why people just are hold it in such high regard and why it holds so much weight or power. Mm-hmm. When the designs are, I mean in comparison to like Japanese tattooing or, or any sort of like tribal um, intricate design, like they're rudimentary. Um, but you know, that's my
0: opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Now I could just play that clip for you and try to sensationalize this whole thing, but that wasn't the overall sentiment of this discussion. Although that answer certainly had some heat behind it. There was way more than just talking about things that they disagreed with inside of tattooing. They provided a lot of context and reasoning for their feelings along with quite a bit of encouragement and positive vibes to anyone who has felt alienated while giving or getting tattoos. Um, in the future I don't really know what's in store but I definitely want to like just have some sort of space for like you know for queer people and for like you know just young brown and black people just so they can like make art and like, you know instead of just being out doing other stuff they just you know come somewhere where they'll be safe and they can create freely without any judgment. So, yeah. At the end of the hour, a Q&A session was open to the audience, and I really felt a sense of community amongst everyone in the room. Every person that got up to ask a question genuinely thanked the panel for their openness and their willingness to share their points of view.
2: Um, I live- don't think would have happened at all. Like, or at least I'm just not aware of enough people having this conversation, so I'm super appreciative that it's been happening, super appreciative of Tan and anybody the diaspora for putting all this together. Um,
0: I left there that day feeling really how strong the power of open discussion can be, especially on a topic like this that doesn't often find an obvious platform for it to happen in.
2: At that point, I realized that it wasn't necessarily about me. It wasn't about me opening up a Pep Up tattoo shop. It was about a lot of people feeling like they didn't have a place to go until that place was opened. Um, and that is really what started off my journey into, like, you know, just acknowledging that it's, it's larger than me.
0: And thanks again to Welcome Home Studio and Inc. The Diaspora for letting me check this out and do a little coverage for the show. But now, let's get back to a bit more of my conversation with Tamara. Yeah. It's me, baby. I, really I heard you on another podcast and I thought it was very cool that uh, you were talking about this idea of the, the toxic tattoo environment. But I really liked how you, you said that that it, it it is dangerous to impose that narrative just as like a given.
1: Right. I think
0: because while it while it does exist for sure yes in many instances a thing that i have a hard time is seeing that being like the narrative from all these things and all these new ideas and different types of studios that are geared to be more welcoming and more open and that's like at the forefront right uh, you know you're not touting the work first you're saying this is a space where everyone is welcome we can make you comfortable because we're not going to do this this and this because shitty toxic old school tattooing is always like this.
1: Yeah. I think that that's, I think that that's dangerous. And and I get
0: it's like a marketing thing for those people where they're like, this is, this is what we've seen. This is what we're doing to fix it. And we're, we're offering something new, which I get, but it's, it, it's hard to accept um, that that's becoming the overall, like what people are trying to view tattooing as.
1: Yeah. And I really understand and empathize with men in tattooing who feel hurt by that. I really do um, because I I come from, you know, a transformative justice perspective, um, which essentially it's sort of like a prison abolitionist term. And where, where I land is that I believe that it's important to acknowledge that we all have the capacity to cause harm and we all have the capacity to heal and to, you know, be capable of an enormous kindness and grace and generosity to each other. So we, I think, yeah, to say that we, but we all have the capacity to help and to heal and that there's no one person, I believe who can never harm another person. And so to talk about safe spaces is worth unpacking because a safe space doesn't exist in a vacuum. It doesn't come to be in this, in this totally organic and effortless way a safe space can mean a completely different thing to one person as to another person. And it's, it's funny what, uh, that's actually come up a few times. It's saved because we've been talking about this idea of the sort of like collective responsibility, right? Of what feels the best to all the artists and all our clients, because we are in a shared space where we don't have uh, barriers or private rooms. And I think that sometimes things can go to the opposite end of the spectrum right where there's all these um I'm trying to think of a good example so I um I had a client recently who was a trans woman super cool woman um she really really wanted to talk to me about sobriety and about um polyamorous relationships and about sort of queer politics and I was just not in a place to do that that day you know um and the more that I tried to redirect the conversation and say like, well, tell me about you, right? Tell me about yourself. What do you, and she would be like, well, what do you think? What's your experience? And, um, and I really, really loved that she felt so comfortable in the space to have that really open conversation. At the same time, I was tired and I didn't feel like being that personally revealing with that client at that moment. So I think whether we're talking about a situation like that or a situation where someone's in the background making rape jokes, there's all different types of ways to be uncomfortable in a space. And I think it's important to acknowledge all of those. Um, rather than saying that, you know, one space is always good, one space is always bad. And I what what comes when was talking about myself particularly, the ways that I've been able to come to care for my clients in the way that I do today comes from a ton of work right? I go to tons of therapy. I trained as a, um, hotline volunteer for an anti-violence LGBTQ hotline. I've worked in correctional facilities. I have like a lifetime of activism, um, behind me. And it's, so it's extremely intentional. It's not like I just decided to put safe space in my Instagram profile and assume that that would be the truth. And I think that that in in that, in doing all the work on our, for ourselves, we also have to think about the fact that, um, well, the thing the, the thing is, I have personally experienced a lot of this like toxicity that people talk about. Sure. I've experienced that in shops with people who I loved very much and people who I felt really held by and really supported by. And that's a nuance that I think is often overlooked, is that people who I owe my entire career to also at times said things that were really hurtful to me. And that's complicated, right? People don't want to talk about the fact that someone can be good and bad at the same time. We can all be good and bad at the same time. And there's people who, and I think what's I think what sh- we should excavate from that is the ways that we can all contribute to an environment that sucks. Because that happens all the time in tattoo shops. It's like it's like when people are accused of being, or when someone says like, hey man, you did something racist. And they're like, hey, I'm not a racist. And they get really upset. It's like, well, no one is saying that it's all about you at this moment that you are at core a racist and evil person. We're saying that you contributed to a racist, type of behavior or that you perpetuated a racist stereotype it's about engaging in this larger structural oppression that we're all swimming around in so for example if i you know if i or i think was like like one time i was in the shop and um in, in in my old shop and people were making rape jokes right um and i was like hey guys can we not make rape jokes and somebody was like, have you personally been raped? Because if not, you don't get a say in whether or not this is funny. And which is a crazy thing to say, right? That's a really awful thing to say, especially in front of a group of men to a woman, um, because then it's like, okay, have you raped somebody? <laughs> like, Is that the only way you get to make a rape joke? Because if you've raped somebody. Um, this is a really extreme example that I use, right? But the, the thing is, all the people who were in that room are people who today, still, I actually really trust. And I think if I were ever to disclose, like, for example, that I was actually sexually assaulted, that they would take that really seriously and they would offer me a lot of emotional support. So trying to separate the truth of who that person is and how they behave with how they engage in a social environment is where it starts to get really difficult because I think we've all said things off the cuff that were more harmful or had a ripple effect that we weren't aware of. And that's not who we are as people. And we need to think about, about that. And I think that that's where people in tattoo shops can get a little bit bogged down where they're like, well, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm not a toxic person. I'm not a misogynist. I have a wife and kids. I I don't believe, you know, I'm, I'm pro-choice. I'm this and that. And they know this sort of like core truths about themselves, but they don't necessarily connect that with the need to externalize those value systems in the workplace and the ways that that can, that people perceiving who they are as people can become confused by... This all this other noise, you know, a lot of bullshit. Um, I think that's and I think that that's the point that we're at right now is that people don't feel that they can inherently trust tattoo artists. And that's not exclusive to tattoo artists in any way either. Our industry is not special. People feel really unsure about trusting doctors. People feel really unsure about trusting their bosses. People feel there's there's so the world is very fraught with potential violence Mm -hmm. and I think that people who do have these really deep senses of integrity, because that exists so, so much in tattooing, you know, that those people, I mean, tattooers are such an intelligent bunch for the most part. I I think I've learned so much in tattoo shops. I think tattooers possess these really incredible people skills and these really incredible community support skills too, right? In ways that I've never seen in other communities, even in like anarchist communities, <laughs> right? It's like tattooers have all these amazing resources at their disposal. We have um, these communal work environments. We have capital, right? We have amazing fundraising abilities. Tattooers are so generous with each other and really, really know how to show up for each other if someone's injured. We understand that the, way, the ways that certain systems fail us, right? Like so many of us don't have health insurance. And so being aware of that, we rally together and raise money for people if they are in a car accident or if they have a cancer diagnosis or if they are motorcycle crashes and they can't work for some time. You know, if someone's shop runs down, everyone sends supplies. And so I think that that great capacity for care needs to be applied towards clients as well. And thinking about how we cultivate a shop environment and what that looks like to an outsider. And, and in taking stock of my own experiences in the tattoo industry, I've also had to think a lot about like um, my own gender stuff, right? Because I I experienced a lot of when I was working at Three Kings because at a certain point, so Annie Lloyd worked there for a while, but then Annie left. And there was a certain point where it was me and literally like 16 men that worked there. And sometimes I would have, I tattooed so many women and gay people who would come in and a lot of them were kind of like, yo, what's it? like working with all these dudes like this kind of this must be crazy for you, right? And they sort of had this expectation that it sucked and that I was just grinning and bearing it, right. Um, the truth of the matter is like no, I was already in all these super male coded subcultures. and I've in retrospect, I've had to acknowledge that that was for a reason, right that that type of masculinity is something that I'm much more comfortable in than like a high femme coded space. Like I would be much more comfortable in a tattoo shop than maybe in like a beauty salon where all women worked there. Um, for a long time, I thought maybe that was just my like internalized misogyny or something. Right. But, um, and I was like, Oh, it's easy to be in tattooing. Cause it was easy to be in hardcore. It was easy to be in heavy metal. It was easy to be in punk. Um, it's kind of the same. It's just like a bunch of dudes yeah, saying, they're all kind of like gateways to crazy each other. Shit, right. Um, and that was just what I was used to dealing with. So tattooing was kind of like nothing new. Um, but I've also had to acknowledge to myself, like actually a lot of that felt really comfortable for me because yeah, because masculinity feels more comfortable. And um, and I think that I have to, that's important to think about too, right? That masculinity is not this inherently toxic thing. Masculinity is not inherently negative. For me, it was really positive. It was really instrumental in me coming into my own as a tattoo artist. It was really instrumental in me having this confidence with clients modeled for me at that age and to learn how to stand up for myself, to learn how to convey that sense of professionalism, to learn how to do a tattoo that I hadn't ever done before. And that was so invaluable um in so many ways. And I think ag- again I think that what we cut ourselves off from when we create these binaries of like men men and tattooing are always unsafe, you know, you should like only go to a woman tattoo or only go to a, like a non-binary tattooer is that you um that can be really limiting all around, right? It creates these these divisions that don't serve anybody, I don't think. I mean, what if so like what if you're a uh, person who wants to get to ta- get like a beautiful Japanese bodysuit right and you're like I don't know I don't feel safe getting tattooed by a guy most of the people who do that style are, are men that I can think of off the top of my head so what does that mean you just can't get that bodysuit um on, and on this by the same token I think that if people because here's the thing right there's been so much trust lost in the industry so many of my clients and I think that a lot of guys don't Get this sort of disclosure because that trust just doesn't exist there. So many of my clients tell me about really negative experiences they've had in tattoo shops. And I cannot overstate how near universal that experience is. And it ranges from everything, you know, from just a weird vibe where they were like, I don't know, people were so rude that I didn't even want to get a tattoo and I left, to things like, um, You know, my tattoo artist, even though I was really uncomfortable with having my shirt off, my tattoo artist didn't do anything to try to find a solution to that. Or, or yeah, you know, the person in the station next to me kept hitting on me while I was getting my tattoo or people being sexually assaulted. Um, That happens so, so, so much. Like, please believe me when I say that. Every tattoo artist that I know who is a woman or a non-binary or trans person get so many disclosures like on a daily basis from their clients who feel safe enough to share that with them. Um, And so I think, you know what I would ask, (laughs) what I would ask men in tattooing to acknowledge and to understand is that a lot of us are doing this sort of unseen reparative work of trying to repair a trust in our industry. And to say to our clients like, yeah, that wasn't okay. That's something that shouldn't have happened to you. That's not gonna happen to you today to give them a good experience that they feel good about, good about. Um, And for me, being at Saved and being in a tattoo shop is a really big part of that. Because, again, I don't think that we should dismiss the institution of tattoo shops wholesale. I don't think getting tattooed in a private studio is inherently safer in any way. Um, There's less variables there for sure. But I think it's important. It's very important to me to say you can come into this tattoo shop. You'll really like the environment. You'll see people like you both getting tattooed and doing the tattoos and you'll hopefully be able to relax a little bit in this space that made you feel really, um, really shitty before. And maybe you can go into another shop with a little more confidence and have a sense that you'll be treated well there because um, yeah, that's something I hear so much from clients.
0: Yeah. And I think it's easy for a tattoo or to say, well, I don't do those things, you know, to listen to what you're saying here. Well, I don't do those things. I treat my customers well. You know, I don't have to worry about it. But in reality, we can all learn, you know, no one's perfect, you know, like we've said. Um, you know, And I think it's important for people to consider, you know, it's okay to feel like you're doing too much as in, in like the direction of right. being good to your customers. And even if, even if you're an older tattooer and, and you roll your eyes and say, well, okay, this is this is the shit the kids are talking about. It's this whole, you know, all these buzzwords, <laughs> right, and right. and like, you just—it's hard to adapt. You know, as things change, we have a hard time adapting. Um,
1: uh but here's the thing, right?
0: Well, well uh, it, at the core, it's just about being good to your customers, which I think is something everyone should be able to agree on. Whether you're you're going to subscribe to this new way of thinking or, or allow yourself to feel like you you're able to do that, yeah, it, it's just being good to your customers.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think.
0: And we should take pride in that.
1: Right, of course. And we all, and we, and everyone has their own, uh, their own form of customer service that they've developed over the years. And I don't think that anyone in tattooing in their right mind is intentionally treating their clients like shit, right? Um, well, what? some
0: are. It's, there's like that romantic idea of the salty old tattooer that we all claim to love, but it's like... <laughs> no one
1: likes that. No, yeah, no, no one likes that. I don't think
0: that'll fly. I think that's that's <laughs> got to be a thing of the past.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think, um, well, so I recently, like to, to your point, I recently wrote this pamphlet that is called um, uh, Informed Consent and Trauma-Aware Practices for Tattooers," And I know that those words Again, like you said, it's like, oh, I don't know. It's 2019. Now we have to talk about informed consent. Like, what is that? Um, What is a trauma-aware practice? This seems really irrelevant to me. But what I was trying to write with this pamphlet is a very concise, really basic steps of the tattooing process and places where you can communicate better with your clients through that, making sure that they're excited about getting tattooed and that everyone is feeling good about the process, checking in with them in these different ways And some people have looked at it, and this was kind of my fear when I put it out, was is this too common sense? I mean, does this even seem helpful or new to anybody? But I think that's part of what's important, is that a lot of it is things that we're already doing and that are already folded into a professional tattoo practice. Um, I think what's new is considering them a little bit more critically and thinking about what it actually achieves. So if I have a client who I'm, I mean, tattooers are basically mind readers, I think. We are so intuitive when it comes to our clients and that's a skill that we have to develop too. So if I have a client who I can tell by their nonverbal cues that they're feeling really nervous, I have, you know, I can either ignore that and think, oh, you know what? It's It's their first tattoo. They're just nervous. That'll pass and not address it. Or I can say, hey, I can see that you're a little bit nervous. Um, what's, what's coming up for you? Is this, is this first tattoo jitters? Is there something about the design that you're not sure about? Like, why don't I go step outside for a second? You can really look at the stencil and make sure it's what you like. Um, and then I'll come back and we'll check in and see how you're feeling. And to me, the latter is pretty basic client care, right? If I sense someone's unsure about getting tattooed, I want to get at the heart of why that might be and see what we can do to fix that. To change it into a really enthusiastic yes. Right. I always say that to my clients. I don't want them to feel like they're talking themselves into getting tattooed. I want them to feel like they're so excited to get something done. Um, and so what that does is gives that person choice in that situation. It gives them a sense of agency. It releases them of the idea of their obligation to me, that they made the appointment, so they have to get what I drew. They have to get tattooed right then. They don't have any space for negotiation, which can be really disempowering. And a lot of what I wrote about in this in this guide is, again, yeah, things that most people I think already do. It's about thinking about them a little bit differently. And when you start to think about it in, in relation to a more urgent client need, that's when I think you start to see it more clearly. So, for example, this pamphlet was drawn or I wrote it up because the shop did a day with the Women's Prison Association and we tattooed a bunch of their clients. They're a reentry services organization for women who have been formerly incarcerated. And so a lot of their clients who we were tattooing, we did free cover ups, had been previously tattooed in situations that were really coercive or non-consensual Um for example, names of their abusers or um, some of them had had experiences with being sex trafficked and the tattoos were a part of that. So if you think about, I mean, just think about that for a second, right? They'd previously been tattooed in this situation of violence. That was their previous association with getting tattooed. So to revisit the tattoo shop, to even step inside a tattoo shop, again, at that point, is takes a lot of courage. Um, to try to overcome that negative experience and try to have a new, a new experience of it. So it really made me think so deeply, what is, what can we do as tattooers to try to make this experience a safe one, to try to make it one that restores a little bit of power to them and one that can be healing for them. And that of course is a, is an extreme example or may seem like an extreme example, but it's really not to tell you the truth. Um, the vast majority of people in the world have experienced some form of trauma, some form of violence, um, whether that's in a tattoo shop or not in a tattoo shop. And I, and I do want to emphasize that a lot of it is in a tattoo shop. So for a lot of people coming back into a tattoo shop is really, um, and having that trust in an artist is is already an enormous thing. So I believe that we should act from that place of care with all of our clients, regardless of how, casual the tattoo seems to be or how confident they seem to be. I think that all clients deserve that consideration because some of them might not even know that they need it, right? And and I think that that's partially what um, – I mean, this is where I find myself between two worlds, right? Is like I love tattooers. I love like the old school dude tattooers who I came up around. I find them to be so thoughtful. I find them to be so caring about their clients in the ways that they know how to be. At the same time, I also am so connected to the people that, you know, the people who, younger people who are tattooing, the like people of color, queer people, non-binary people who are getting into tattooing, who haven't had a space where they feel okay to practice tattooing or even to get a tattoo. Um, And in trying to bridge those two worlds What I see so so through this pamphlet, I've been working on this much longer resource that's about I'm thinking of it as like a trauma-aware philosophy for tattooing that's about self-care towards community care. I'm thinking about tattooing as liberation work, which is a maybe a really flashy sounding title. (laughs) But I really do believe it to be that because I think that all tattoos I think, um, actually I listened to the episode you did with Scott Harrison and he said something that I really loved about how tattoos are these like kind of dumb cartoon stickers that can never quite visually represent the truth of what they mean to people as this kind of like psychic armor or talismanic possession. And, and I love that. And that's exactly what I'm, what I'm trying to speak to, right? Is like, yeah, even if you're getting like literally a cartoon tattoo of Mickey Mouse, There's still so much potency in choosing how you want your body to look and choosing how you want to present to the exterior world. And that means so many different things to so many different people because we all lead very different lives and our existences are politicized differently. So for example, if I have a if I have a client who is gay um, and is getting a Tama Finland tattoo, like a really sexy, like raunchy Tama Finland tattoo on their outer bicep. That is a really brave declaration of being like, yeah, I'm gay. I'm a pervert. Deal with it. Right. That's really bold. That's super bold. Um, If I'm tattooing, you know, I tattooed um, in Tulsa recently, which was a really interesting experience because tattooing has only been legal in Tulsa for, I think, the last 11 years very i think it was the last date to legalize actually and i was doing similar work tattooing women who had been recently incarcerated and doing free cover-ups and i was recording some stories from them about their tattoos and um how do you line
0: up stuff like that
1: so for that one i um some folks at an artist fellowship invited me to come out and they gave me a place to stay um, a local shop Ritual Electric let me work there and then um, we reached out to a re-entry services organization and asked if any of their clients would be interested in free tattooing so because that's something that exists actually a lot is maybe not the tattooing necessarily although I know other people do that but laser removal services um, there's you know Homeboy Industries in California that does free laser removal for people um, so there is this idea that you can transform yourself and transform your life by either adding or removing a tattoo. And for the women that I was tattooing, I mean, the stories that they had about what they what they had gotten and what it meant to them were really incredible. So this one woman was telling me that she had been tattooed by somebody she was dating at the time. We were covering up this huge tattoo that was honest, honestly illegible. You know, when I saw it, I was like, I, I truly cannot tell what this is meant to be. And she told me she had gotten it tattooed by someone she was dating at the time that they were both really high and that he had been yelling at her and kind of berating her and making the tattoo hurt more on purpose while he was tattooing her. And as she was telling me this, I was like, wow, okay, now I understand even the initial getting of this tattoo as a form of assault. That is a form of violence. Um, And so we were covering it with, this other tattoo basically like a version of what it was originally meant to be and she I mean, I mean long long story short like this was her first time really being tattooed in a professional shop environment a lot of them for a lot of them too because it had been illegal for so long and so in those few interactions or even just in that one interaction there were so many considerations right it's like okay first time at, first time in a tattoo shop like how do I try to put you at ease? How do I explain to you the process? Because it is different than getting tattooed in your house, maybe, or getting tattooed in in jail, definitely. Um, So you know what to expect and you can be comfortable. And she was so nervous. She was already like, I got this tattoo just after being raped. And I am putting a lot of weight in covering it because I know that if I don't cover it, I can't move forward with my life. But covering it also feels like erasing a part of my history. And that is also challenging. And I almost didn't come in today. So these are really, these are really heavy examples, right? But just think about that, right? It's like, if you start to unravel that thread, there is just so much about our bodies, about the lives that we've lived through our bodies, about the ways, the ways that we got the tattoo, what was happening in our life when we got the tattoo. um, What's this new experience of getting the tattoo going to be like? And that's, today, it's a lot of what, I don't want to say it's a lot of what I do because that sounds like it's an intentional task that I'm taking on, but it's not. I think it's just inherent to tattooing. So I think that we all, I think all tattoos possess some elements of that, of, um, you know, tattoos can help you defy stereotypes that are assigned to you. Tattoos can help you reclaim your body after trauma. They can be a way to practice being embodied, being present in your physical form, in a really real way, um, tattoos can be a way to record your own history, which I think is really important. Um, you know, there's like the the phrase that tattoos can never be lost or stolen. It's like more precious mm-hmm. than jewels. That That is really significant. I mean, if you're a person who's experienced homelessness, if you've experienced intimate partner violence where your resources were being controlled by somebody else, um, if you've had your property taken away from you by the state – then having something that you can never lose or have taken away from you is really important. Um, there's also aspects of that in um, in the ways that tattooing intersects with incarceration as well. I mean, I think that that's a particular site where tattooing is so important. Like the stories that the women were telling me in Tulsa, one of them was telling me that um, her grandmother passed away while she was locked up and that she obviously couldn't be there for the funeral. She couldn't be there for the last days of her grandmother's life. She couldn't join in the collective grieving of her family. So she ended up getting a tattoo, a portrait of her grandmother while she was inside. And that was a way for her to feel that she could participate in that process and be present for it, even though she couldn't physically be present, that she could emotionally join in and that she knew she wouldn't be seeing her grandmother when she got out. She wouldn't be going home to that person, but she would still always have her with her in some way. Or women sharing with me that you know they have their kids' names tattooed on their arm, and that being able to look at that every day was so significant to them, especially because they didn't have to—they didn't have to wait for you know the dad to decide to bring them for a visit. They didn't have to wait for a photo to come in the mail or for a phone call that they were always connected. Um, and so you know all of that, all of those you know really heavy examples are to say that tattooing is so much more than we necessarily give it credit for in our daily practice. And part of approaching that, I believe is this sort of disassociating and minimizing that we have to do as artists to just be able to do our jobs and to go home and go to sleep at night. Because I mean, think of how many tattoos you've done that were a memorial tattoo that were over self-harm scars that were, um, on a part of somebody's body that they may maybe weren't comfortable with. Um, that were, you know, for somebody doing time in the military. There's – every tattoo has so much meaning behind it. And I know that we can talk about that in a joking way because of tattoo TV. It's like, oh, you know, it's your life story. Everyone's got a story nowadays. But I I don't think that we should make light of that. I think we should actually – not necessarily lean into it, but acknowledge the psychic weight that it has on us as practitioners. Because what I see is an enormous lack of support for ourselves and support for each other in that. If you think about tattooing as a process where causing pain to other people all day long, we're not only causing pain to other people, we're witnessing people in pain. So from And we're making a permanent change to their bodies, let alone all of the psychic baggage that they're coming in with around the tattoo, right? So... I remember early in my career having to really put all of those things completely out of my mind so that I didn't just lose my shit and have an anxiety attack in the middle of doing a tattoo, right? You can't think about the fact that it's permanent. You can't think about the fact that it's a body. You have to just do what's in front of you, disassociate from all of that, perform your job as well as you can. And I think that we carry that through the entirety of our careers, um, which makes it really easy to dehumanize the people that we're working with.
0: Totally. Totally.
1: So I think that what we need to do is revisit the weight of what we're doing, even though it's really hard because we need better coping mechanisms. All tattooers do. And in a way, I consider myself pretty fortunate because I come from this radical background. I come from like a queer community where we talk about our feelings all day long. We process things with each other. We have a lot of skills. I go to therapy. so I consider myself pretty well equipped with a support system to, to um, recover from all of that. But not everyone has that. And I think people who are who I think that men in particular are socialized to not lean on those forms of community support and to not acknowledge the weight of the emotions that they're being totally crushed by <laughs> at work. Right. I mean, can you imagine like there's been times that I've tattooed people and I just had to cry Afterwards, and I'm sure a lot of people feel like they can't cry in front of their coworkers. Um, and I think that there's also, I mean, there's so all each tattooer is different, right? But I sent out all of these surveys to a bunch of different types of tattoo artists, asking them how they see trauma entering into their work, and asking them if they consider themselves to be trauma impacted, asking them um, if they had client care modeled for them by a peer or a mentor when they were learning, asking them what they would ask for from clients to meet their needs better. And the answers, so I, I, you know, again, I sent this out to clients or to tattoo artists kind of across the board. And what was really striking is that everyone thinks about these things. Even people who I wouldn't necessarily think to have that sort of consciousness or awareness, everyone is thinking about it. And everyone is trauma impacted themselves, you know. Um, and I want to especially emphasize that even though, you know, this, this new generation of people who are more heavily like non-white or queer people or women, they experience structural trauma differently. They experience structural oppression differently um, than a white guy might. So many of the people who are in tattooing experience their own forms of trauma or, you know, these kind of old school guys that we think about. A lot of them were military veterans. That's like the OG PTSD group, right? Um, A lot of them come from really violent, terrible family situations. A lot of them come from economic backgrounds where they had no other options available available to them professionally, where they have scarcity experience, where they have housing instability. And that's what I want to pay attention to and to have a conversation about is that we're all coming from places where we're dealing with our own shit and Having all of these conversations with our clients and being asked to show up in these really nuanced um, and weighty ways for our clients, it it takes a toll. It takes a toll on all of us, especially if we don't have those support systems. So there's there's actually a really amazing book called Trauma Stewardship that I read that had a huge impact on how I think about what I was doing. Because when I was training for the hotline… I realized the ways that people were calling in in crisis was exactly the things that people were talking about in their tattoo sessions. And that was really a light bulb moment because I was like, whoa, I thought crisis looked like something really different, but this is exactly the same. And since then I've been able to pay attention more to people who who are talking about, you know, someone will be saying what might seem like a casual story, but now I can hear they're actually talking about being in a, um, in an abusive relationship or someone will start to talk about, um, you know, I've had clients disclose so many different things to me in ways that wasn't, they weren't a serious, like, Hey, can I talk to you about something? Or like, Hey, I'm really upset right now. But people would be like, Oh yeah. haha, I don't know. I had kind of a crazy weekend. I blacked out because I guess someone roofied me. Um, and that those things are coming up so much more and having the, having the sudden awareness of what it was that I was actually doing at work, I was like, oh my God, this is all healing work. This is all therapeutic work. And some of us are being asked to do that work differently, I believe. I think because a lot of people come to me for shared identity reasons that there's already a little baseline trust that's established and they maybe feel a little more open to talking about those things. But I'm also really curious how men experience that, especially men who have a lot of men as clients, because I know those things do still come up. Um, and I really wonder what those conversations sound like. I'm not a dude, so I don't know right, what that's right. like.
0: Yeah. Um, that would be an interesting comparison because I'd be willing to bet it's, there's a lot of similarities.
1: I, I believe that there is. And I also,
0: I mean, differences in how it's communicated, I'm sure, but at the core of it, it would probably be a very interesting and eye opening comparison.
1: Yeah. I I think so. So I think even though there are there's so there's so many differences, there's differences, there's also so many similarities at core.
0: I think your viewpoints on all of this is so it's so important and it's clear talking to you about it that it all comes from all these other experiences that you've seeked out and that you've spent your time on and the research you do. And I mean, what's really amazing is that you even have time to do tattoos with all this stuff. I mean, you're you're doing a lot of work here. Inside and outside of tattooing, but it's all swirling in the same universe.
1: Totally. Um,
0: But because of those things, and like you're saying, you're seeing these connections and that um, from working on the hotlines, you're able to identify things in your clients that you didn't realize before. Even being someone who's compassionate and sensitive to it. And and I think that's what's important for all of us to admit that, uh, you know, we're all still learning and we need to be open to seeing new things and don't just rest on your laurels because... That's how you get into these positions where an entire industry is like halted in a. It's like a snapshot in time that's just not fit for the world.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's also why it's important for us to value our lives outside of tattooing because that's another thing. Tattooing is actually really similar to social work in that they can become really codependent and have enormously high burnout rates. And when I talk to people in tattooing about the causes of their burnout, a lot of them say you know things like. Um, putting tattooing above everything else in their lives, neglecting their personal relationships because of tattooing, you know, whether that's staying late and having to cancel date night with your wife or whether that's that you didn't sleep that night because you wanted to finish this painting that day or, um, comparing yourselves to other people and having negative self-talk because of this enormous window into every other tattooers practice that we have now called Instagram. Mm Things like feeling that their clients aren't respecting their time their time boundaries or have the stress of, being, of owning your own business, right? We're all essentially self-employed and have to do all this work of advertising, of doing your taxes, of um, maintaining your scheduling, of answering emails. And, and I think that having, making sure to cultivate practices outside of tattooing and to rather than develop a, a lot of us are really codependent with tattooing. I think totally Um, and we have an unhealthy way of course and we have this really romanticized notion of like never sleep like the best work happens at four in the morning and like (laughs) you know it's all about working as much as you possibly can and
0: it's like the troubled artist thing
1: of course it's the the
0: tortured artist rather
1: but we're doing it to ourselves right we're ultimately the agents of it like if i'm taking on too much work it's because i took on too much work and i have no one to blame but myself Mm. um and i would never have come to the place that i am with tattooing if i wasn't doing these other things outside of it and we can get into these echo chambers in tattooing, and that's where we start to to trip up and be like, well, there's nothing wrong here. I don't see anything wrong, but we're not taking in outside perspectives and we're not getting outside inspiration and we're not making time and space to, to be our whole selves and to bring that into our tattooing practice rather than making the tattooing practice our whole selves. And I think that with, I mean, myself included, think about people who... Have been in tattooing since they were 18, 19. If that's your entire social universe from that age, think about what that means for your socialization, right? And and that's another thing about tattooing, right? When we talk about the It's like um, a cult. Yeah. <laughs> it can be a little cult like, but you know, social groups are so self-selecting too, and tattooing has these kind of like gatekeeper practices of apprenticeship and hiring that make that really possible in really um, really real ways. And that's another thing that I think we have to acknowledge, too, is the ways that we ta- – apprenticing someone is such an enormous commitment, right? Teaching somebody how to tattoo or hiring someone as your shop assistant or bringing an artist onto the crew are huge commitments. They're really, they're really serious. You know, they require a lot of consideration and commitment. Um, and a lot of the times that we do that, we want it to be somebody that we know, somebody that we feel comfortable with. And for a lot of people, that's somebody like them. And so we have to take a look at the ways that that is perpetuating a type of self-selection that excludes other people. So if I'm a white guy who wants to hire someone who's like me, I'm probably going to hire another white guy. Um, So it's important to think about the more unseen and unintentional ways. It's like maybe you're not intentionally having the conscious thought, oh, I'm not going to hire a black woman for this job. But. Maybe you didn't take the time to think like, oh, this would be a great opportunity to hire a black woman um, because that would be an amazing person to have at our shop. Um, There's so many different people tattooing and there's so many um, people who are so talented and want to learn and want it in. And I think we have to look outside of ourselves and look at the ways that that self-selection process happens and to acknowledge that That's not necessarily a fault of our own, that it is a structural construct. It's a a construct. It's a social construct, right, Um, that we have to be working against. And so when I think about the future of tattooing, I mean, obviously, all these things that I've, well, and, and also the things like with what, again, what I'm hoping to do with this resource is to give people who maybe don't have resources about this stuff a place to start. Because that's the other thing that I'm really frustrated by is I see a lot of people who are like, hey, I don't really know about this or and they're immediately rained down upon with this chorus of like, well, don't ask me to teach you. Like, I'm not here to do emotional labor. Here's my Venmo handle. Like, pay me. Don't come at me. Google is free, which I mean, yeah, (laughs) Google is free. But to tell someone who wants to learn and wants to connect with other people that that's something they can only do in isolation, and that no one else has time or resources for them is so deeply isolating and so that's counterproductive troubling to in every me. way. Yeah, so I think to tell someone like, "Well, you can't be here until you go far away from us, learn alone, and come back when you figured out the right things" is doesn't when in help. reality
0: we still won't accept you then either.
1: Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> help anybody. It do,
0: yeah, it doesn't work.
1: And and so I think with I mean with when it comes to learning too, right? I love having conversations with people because it's not just about me emotionally blackmailing them and being like, well, we can't be friends unless you agree with me. It's about me investing into them. It's like, hey, I really love you. I love having you around. I value you as a person. I might disagree with what you're saying, but I would love to talk about that and see what point we can get to because it's not me shunning you. It's me again like yeah investing investing in you it's a mutual investment and growth and that's what community is about and that's what the tattoo community should be about
0: a huge thank you to tamara for being on the show this week we talked about the informed consent and trauma aware tattooing pamphlet that she wrote it is available online and you can just download a pdf and print out your own copies if you'd like and i will make sure to link that in the show notes so you can find it very easily Along with Doreen's full interview, I will also put up the full conversation I had with Tamara this week for any of you that want more. And there's plenty more from each of them, so make sure to check those out. As we close this one out, I hope you enjoyed this episode. These conversations have definitely given me a lot to think about since recording them, and I hope it's done the same for you after listening. As always, I am Andrew Stortz, and you can follow me on Instagram at AndrewStortz, S-T-O-R-T-Z. And I do not want to forget another huge thank you to our sponsors this week, two tremendous supporters of the show, Eternal Inc. and Tattoo Smart. If you want to follow the show more, head over to booksclosedpodcast.com. You can find all the information about every episode, videos, show notes, links, whatever it is your heart desires. You can even buy some merch if you want to show support to the show that way. That would be neat. But if not, just keep listening or watching, and that's good enough. And don't forget about our voicemail line, 857-444-0662. With any of your thoughts, ideas, reactions to any of the episodes, just call and leave a message, and you can be part of the show. And if you do enjoy the show, and you're on iTunes, feel free to leave a five-star rating and a very nice and kind review. And If you don't like the show, one, you probably haven't made it this far, so that's cool, but two, just skip the whole rating thing. We don't need it. We've still got plenty more to go. Season 3 of Books Closed. Bye now.